recording, and you can go ahead and uh, you have to press play whenever you're ready. Well, we have to go back to the beginning. It is. I, I moved it back. Yeah, all you have to do is hit the button on the bottom, hit the space bar. Okay, so... Just hit the space bar, the button on the bottom. Space bar. Space bar. Space bar. Right, right here. That's the space bar. Sorry. That's a button. <laughs> it's not back at the beginning. Now it is. <laughs> All right, folks, welcome back to Crypticast. Episode two is what we're covering today, the state of modern Hollywood. Uh, let, I, let me add here that mm-hmm. I, I always argue with Mark because I don't like the use of the term Hollywood to refer to the world of cinema, but it is a, a useful, easy shorthand, and so we're not talking about Hollywood, the town, so much as Hollywood, the concept. Uh, when it comes to Hollywood, many independent filmmakers ask the question, why even bother. I mean, isn't Hollywood dead right now? Um, but I actually want to talk, focus on, on the state of Hollywood and what it means to independent filmmakers, how we can relate to it as independent filmmakers. And I'm going to do this by posing a bunch of questions to my partner, uh, Christian Stevrakis. Um, and uh, once again, I'm sorry, I'm Mark Ritchie, award-winning filmmaker. This is Christian Stevrakis, Mark Ritchie's uh creative partner and uh, we together represent uh, actually we are cryptic pictures (laughs) which is why you're listening to the cryptic cast Uh, so why does Hollywood lack originality Um, why are they failing to recognize the power of originality being that Hollywood has turned into this you know, regurgitation machine, that it's that it's suffering from sequelitis. We're seeing article after article in major newspapers from Time Magazine, to, or, I'm sorry, Washington Post to New York Times to, to periodicals such as Time and Newsweek. Gosh, is Newsweek even a magazine anymore? Not I don't in think print. so. Not, <laughs> in, not, in, not in print. Now, we're, da- da- we're dating ourselves. I think it may have come back, actually. It went out of print for a while. And now it's back. And the Daily Beast oh, bought it, funny. and then it came, I think it may be back in print. I don't know. Oh, that's crazy. Um, so, uh, so I posed the question to not only... Uh, Christian, but to our listeners too, that you ponder this: Why does Hollywood lack originality? And I don't think it's a, just a recent phenomenon. I mean, this has been going on for forty years now. I mean, look at—I think the first real franchise, or one of the first, anyway, *Planet of the Apes*. You know, yeah. the film was nineteen sixty-seven, sixty-eight. When did that movie come out? Uh, the first one. The first one. Yeah, it was in the. Uh, I thought it was early. No, the first one was like 60-something, yeah. And then it was, there were, how many sequels? I mean, there's... You you posed the question. So Chris and I are actually uh, recording this in my my loft upstairs where I have two walls of, of, you know, we're going to date ourselves now, two walls of VHS films. We have about 2,000 films to our left and 2,000 films to our right. So for all intents and purposes, we are uh, recording... What does that say there on the back of that? uh, Oh, thank God I brought my glasses. Planet of the Apes. When was Uh, Planet of the Apes? Planet of the Apes I swear it was 72, but maybe I'm wrong. No, 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 no. Planet of the Apes. I don't even see. Oh, there it is, nineteen sixty-seven. Nineteen sixty-seven. Yep. Son of a gun. So, but, but it, that, so the series a, lasted all the way to seventy-six, if I'm not mistaken. And there was also a TV spinoff. Uh, that's and there right. Were toys, yeah. which and, I watched as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the first real franchises, uh, and that carried on certainly through into the seventies and eighties, uh, with movies like uh, Death Wish and Friday the Thirteenth, and uh, you know there were a lot of that, that's when sort of franchise filmmaking really began, uh, in my estimation. And uh, so that's th- this is just a logical extension of that, that uh, because especially in that time period in the in the seventies, sixties, and seventies, the studios, the, the old studio heads were dying off, the studios were being bought out by corporations like Gulf and Western, 
and uh, the people running those studios now, the people actually minding the, the, the checkbooks, wanted a sure thing. And it was, you know, probably around that time, especially, you know, Spielberg gets the blame for it with Jaws, and then Lucas with Star Wars, the, the big tentpole summertime movie. And uh, that's always been the dream of... Uh, Any filmmaker. <laughs> the, well, not the filmmaker, no, 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 but the producer. Oh, right, you know, gotcha. the, the money men in show business, because like they say, with no business, no show. Uh, they want to make a sure thing. They want to make the movie that makes money every year. And the only thing that keeps that from happening is the, I don't want to say fickleness, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the audience is, is very choosy about what they want to see at a particular time. Sometimes a movie just hits a certain way at a certain time, and, and it's like winning the lottery. But nobody's ever cracked the formula of making the successful movie every time out, except maybe James Cameron who, you know, Titanic and Avatar, as much as we can damn them with faint <laughs> praise as, you know, what a, what a textbook right, chemistry right. set movie formulaic. that is. The, yeah, very formulaic, but they worked both times. They became the top grossing movie because he, he was appealing to uh, either a broad enough audience or... Well, I, I, I sometimes struggle with, you know, this, this attitude of lowest common denominator. And now that Hollywood has shifted because of everything that occurred with the collapse of the DVD, which reminds me, if, if anybody out there has not read Linda Opst's book, Sleepless in Hollywood, you absolutely must. It talks about why the current structure is in place in Hollywood. And the demise of the, of the financial income, the demise of the DVD and the income that, brought, that was brought in by the DVD markets when, when everybody started streaming and nobody was buying DVDs anymore because of piracy and so forth. Yeah, not even just DVD, but home video. Home video in general. Yeah. And uh, the, the, that collapse uh, brought forth a need to, to supplant the, the, the income in some capacity. And what they did is they, they found the burgeoning uh, uh, markets, namely China and the foreign markets, yeah. where you have billions and billions of people who want to see Hollywood films. Big, loud Hollywood um, action films. And so what they've done is uh, the, the, the films themselves are almost coming... The, the approach that they have is is coming from a lowest common denominator attitude. It needs to be it needs to be a a, a film whose script is recognized or understood by uh, by multi generational audiences, but not only that, but multicultural audiences. Yeah. audiences as well. And so Hollywood has has shifted in that direction. For financial reasons, and that's completely understandable. Again, we're not here to bash Hollywood. Hollywood does it well, and and they do it successfully. I hate to say it, but the, you know what I mean. They've got the major bank backing. Uh, made, uh, they've got the investors clamoring to to put money down on Avatar two. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because they know it's a sure thing. But but we're flocking to the cinema. I go to the movies once a week. What do I see? I see whatever the cinema is. And, you know, Hollywood owns the cinema, the, the, the movie theater chains, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, Regal and, and Lowe's. Yeah, the, these are all owned by the The, the days the are long gone when the distributor or the, the, the theater owner could say, I don't want to show that movie. Yeah. You know, now you have to have 12 screens, and you better be showing, you know, uh, Star Wars Episode Nine on three of those screens if you want to show the little art house movie that's also being released by that major studio. Not only that, but when, when we were shooting our film, we wanted to. Uh, uh, I don't. I, wanna, I don't want to use the word confiscate, but we wanted to <laughs> rent. I should say rent a kiosk uh, or a marquee at a, at a local movie theater in Pittsburgh, and uh, 
we asked them if you know if they could remove uh, what was Warhorse. Spielberg's War Horse was being shown. Was that the title of the oh, film? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was being shown, and we asked them, could you remove War Horse and put up the title of our film so that we could end up you know, using it as a, as a clip in our feature? <laughs> and they, were, they did it, but they were extremely hesitant. And the reason being, he was like, I really can't... I, we're going to get hell from the studio for this if they were to ever find out. And I'm thinking, What? You're, you're the studio's bitch. It's your movie theater. This was an independent art house cinema, mind yeah. you. And, and I was like, this is your, you can do whatever the hell you want with your marquee in off hours. And yeah, this, they, was, this was after midnight when we were shooting. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's all contractual now. Even to show the film, you have to sign a contract, contract saying, yeah. we promise not to remove it from the marquee. It'll be up for so many days. days and, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, so, the, I mean, Hollywood truly does own the system. They call it the Hollywood system for a reason. Well, it's, uh, you know, again, it's the um, betting on a sure thing every time. They're looking for the... You know, oh, that one made ten million. Look at Friday the Thirteenth. You know, so I, and like you were saying about Empire Strikes Back in our last episode, uh, Friday the Thirteenth, I think, is another prime example of where the second movie kind of got the formula right. You know, they the first one was sort of an unexpected hit, and they were able to look at it and say, okay, what was what was popular about this film, and redo it uh, even more so the second time around. So I think Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Uh, is structurally a better film than the original. I agree with it's that. It's probably yes, yes. certainly one of the best of the series. I, one of my, my favorite. But it made again, it made money, and uh, so every summer for the next seven years, they made another Friday the Thirteenth movie. I think they missed one but, year and then came but back. I thought their intent all along was to make a, a, a thirteen part series. No, 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 no it was no, no. not. Really, that was all no, that rumor. Was all, that was a rumor. Ah, son of a gun. Yeah, no. Originally, and in fact, it's great when you hear um, Victor Miller, who wrote the original Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, he says, you know, Sean Cunningham, he had just made uh, Last House on the Left with uh, Wes Craven, and then uh, Halloween came out. They, they, they had making some other movie called Manny's Orphans, which was like a soccer team, kind of a bad news bear, coming, <laughs> coming of age movie. Talk about regurgitation. Yeah, you know, sophomore slump. And um, it might have about actually been... No, it wasn't before Bad News Bears, because that was in the 70s, I think. Anyway, they were making this, this you know, the sports kind of teenager movie. And uh, then Halloween came out. John Carpenter's Halloween. And literally, Victor Miller says, Sean came to me and said, Halloween's making a lot of money. Let's rip it off. Yeah, yeah. Why and not? They never had plans for 13 sequels, you know, but uh, that's kind of where it's going now. I wanted to write one myself, and I should have, but I think somebody's already working on on the sequel. I should have written I, it on know, spec. But writing things on spec these days, folks, is... is that a, doesn't... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work anymore. That's not the way it's done. Yeah. So, uh, as, we, as we mentioned in our first episode, you know, you you got you to gotta finish the product. You got to finish the film in order for anybody to even take notice, to yeah. even bother to watch it or talk to you uh, anymore. Um, but, but um, as you mentioned, for the last 40 years, Hollywood has been a regurgitation machine. But even before that, I mean, I go back to... Disney was the was the ultimate... Uh, sequel, you know, regurgitation machine. This guy was taking, uh, he was he was the Shakespeare of his day. He was taking grim fairy tales and and turning them into uh, films. Um, you, you, Star Wars is is a is a rehash of Flash Gordon. Um, for for God knows how long, Hollywood's been taking theatrical or book adaptations and turning them into to films. So. You know this idea that 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 this cycle that we're in is something new. It's is not. not. No, it's not. It's not <coughs> new, folks. It's not, and it's uh, it, it's it all bears on that. That who was the uh, was Christopher Booker? He wrote this book, Why We Tell Stories, 
And uh, he's the one who, I don't know if he came up with this theory, but that it's been around for a while. He said that there's, you know, what, seven basic plots, which is, you know, overcoming the monster, uh, rags to riches, the quest, uh, a voyage and a return, you know, a, re, a, a rebirth, comedy and tragedy. Uh, there are only, you know, you can combine those things, like, you know, Titanic. You can look at James Cameron and say, okay, it's rags to riches, you know, for the, the poor kid who gets on the boat and has his tuxedo, he has dinner with the rich people. Right, right, right. right. Uh, and it's also tragedy, you know, uh, voyage without a return. But, the, you know, the, you can combine those seven ideas, but those are the seven basic plots. Those go all the way back to the beginning of, of literature, of storytelling in general. Mm-hmm. And so every film, it could be argued, is some variation on one of those basic themes. Uh, and the trick is finding a novel way to tell the story. And that's where things like, um, what's the one with uh, Guy Pierce where he's remembering in reverse? What was Memento. It? Memento. Memento, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christopher Nolan's Memento. Right, yeah. Memento. So the, the, the movie's told in reverse, so you're wondering what the hell's going on until the end of the movie. Suddenly everything makes sense. Which is very novel. And that's, that's brilliant. Really yeah, that's brilliant. Um, what's another one? Another, uh, or uh, uh, Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers debut that was uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a very very simple old story that's been used in soap operas and god knows how many other formats for the year the, the guy is cheating on his wife they hire a detective to take pictures and it's the same old shit but and I, I found this fascinating was that when they finally released it on DVD because they had to remove the song when it was released theatrically and on video or I think it was maybe just video but they had over the credits it's the same old song but with a different beat and that's that kind of sums up the way they told that story it's the same old shit but it's told in a fresh new way and that's what that's that's their stock and trade the Coen brothers tell stories that are you know you've seen these stories a million times but you've never seen it told in their fashion and that is you know they've they sort of cornered that that market because they have their own very unique inimitable style much of what you're covering is, is is talking about story and the vitality of story in, in the filmmaking process. And we're going to get into that in our next episode, actually, where we talk about how we came up with our story. How, how are we going to tell something in an original fashion? Um, how are we going to you know give genesis to something that hasn't been told but yet has, but yet say it in, and, and express it? Uh, to an audience in in a in a different you know fresh format, um, so we're going to be covering that. But before we get to that episode, we're kind of focusing on in this episode on you know how Hollywood has somehow lost the art and soul of of filmmaking. Art and soul, I like the, that. The art and soul of filmmaking. <laughs> I mean, Hollywood is it's a business. Okay, we ex- we 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 expect that. We understand that. Um, without the business, we all don't get to go to the movie theaters. So, so I'm, I'm, I, again, we're not against Hollywood. I'm all for Hollywood making the films that they're making. I'm also uh, in, in, in support of independent filmmakers getting out there and, and bringing something new and fresh because that's where the next Hollywood superstar is going to be coming from. Um, and yes, we ourselves were, were in that position where we, you know, we, we couldn't afford any sort of intellectual property of any of any kind, we weren't going to put money down on a book. Yeah. Uh, we had to come up with something, and, and you know, fresh, so, uh, something right out of the bag. We 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 didn't have the option that Hollywood often does, where you get to kind of raid the vault, and you know what I mean. Let's make, remake, we'll remake Green property. Lantern. Right? That's that's the key you know? anymore. To I mean, for for again, for a couple of decades, does it have a built-in audience? You know, Marvel comics. People have been reading Marvel comics since the the nineteen sixties. 
So if you make a Spider-Man movie, X million people are going to come and see it, even if it sucks. Uh, the Incredible Hulk, which was a terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> which uh, one? The, was the one with Edward Norton. It was, oh, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Well, no, you, let's let's be fair now. You didn't like it, but there may have been fans oh, was, out there who enjoyed it. Was, it. Well, well you know, let's put it this way. The, all the Marvel films, because Marvel is now owned by Disney, and Disney's not foolish when it comes to marketing their movies. If you go to the uh, the video shelf at, say, Walmart, all the Marvel movies, even the ones that are you know five and six years old, are still 1995, <laughs> with the exception of the Hulk, which is 750. So they're trying to sell off that stock as, as quickly as they can because it, it is terrible, terrible movie. I, um, gonna, you know, what? No, no, no disrespect to Ed Norton because he is a fine actor, but uh, just it was very the effects were very bad. Uh, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, you know, I, I, you, you like my term, the art and soul of of mm-hmm. Hollywood, which for me is is in a, you know a good story. But when was the last time? And I know for me when that was, uh, because I remember leaving the theater excited that I had actually had a cinematic orgasm. Um, <laughs> when was the last time you went to a, 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 a the cinema and watched a movie that made you reminisce of the David Lean days, where? You could see the art happening, and and it wasn't that they were they were uh, uh, placating an audience by by uh, not even referencing old Hollywood, but they had taken the the craft as we now know it, the use of CGI, and allowing themselves to be empowered by this, and yet telling a story in such a fresh new way that you that you literally had a cinematic orgasm. For me. It was Mad Max. I thought Mad Max was just as I was watching the it. I remember new one. going, "Yeah, the latest uh, Fury, uh, Fury, Road. Fury Road." I remember thinking to myself, "Good God, I haven't seen anything this." Yes, it was a roller coaster ride, um, but I remember asking myself questions: How did they do this? Wow, that was so beautifully shot! Wow, what a great, what a great moment! You know, all of these, all of these expectations that we have every time we go to the cinema, we want to be taken on a journey. But, but I, as a filmmaker, also want to be impressed. I want to. I want to watch something like you know, when I rewatch Lawrence of Arabia, and I think to myself, God, what a beautiful shot! Did they storyboard that? Where did he come up with that idea? You know what I mean? Um, and so, when was the last time that you kind of? That's a tough call. Went to the cinema and felt transported. Yeah. Uh, now I, I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of great. Th- I, I go to the cinema, like I said, once a week. I, I don't know if I mentioned that in this podcast or previous. I I. I loved The Accountant, the Ben Affleck film that came out. It was a lot of fun, you know what I mean? I just saw Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage. A lot of fun. No, these aren't brilliant, you know, films. They're made for an international audience. Um, But they were a lot of fun to watch. But the last time I was actually moved by a film and was so delighted to see the Academy recognize it for the same reasons I recognized it. Yeah, we're going to give you the award for special effects. Yeah, we're going to give you the award. You know what I mean? It walked away with, what, seven Oscars or something like that? Um, mm. And and I just remember thinking, and I remember leaving the theater going, when was the last time I left so satiated? By not just a good film told in, an, in a creative and innovative way, but the last time I actually felt full from a film. What, what satisfied, I, yeah. Satisfied. Leaving satisfied. Um, and not just kicking myself. It's, it's the difference between eating a, a, a steak yeah. and eating a McDonald's cheeseburger. Yeah, yeah, Mc, yeah. I mean, you're just as full either way. Right, right, right. But, you know, McDonald's leaves you feeling sort of regretfully full. You no, know, absolutely. And eating a steak, you feel like you've had a meal. 
Uh, I have to be honest. I have to say Rogue One. Rogue One. You Rogue really enjoyed One, that much. Oh, yeah. I, I really enjoyed the hell out of it because uh, even my, my wife, Annie, she said the... Uh, why do I need to know how they got the plans of the Death Star? Why are we seeing... You know, it's a Star Wars movie. <laughs> fine, we'll go see it. And she came out of the theater like, oh my God, I can't believe... And then when we... we of course, like everyone else, we immediately ran home and watched A New Hope. And the first two paragraphs, it says... The, the rebels have just won their first victory against yeah. them. She's like, my God, that's the, the first two paragraphs <laughs> of the movie we just saw, you know? And it's brilliant, the, the, the way they went back and tied it in. And who knows, you know, they're talking about reshoots, and they, they changed it this, this way and that way. But what, what they ended up with was, to me, a very satisfying cinematic experience. Because, see, even Force Awakens, uh, you know, J.J. Abrams is the, you know, who polished the old formula and bring it back. It was so much like the first, you know... There were a lot of references, you know, sound effects and, and visual set design and stuff, referencing the old trilogy, the original trilogy that we wanted to. But it was like a, it was like a spritz of liquid smoke on top of, you know. He had his hands tied. He had yeah. his hands. But, but mind you, he, he did not make that mistake with Star Trek, where he basically said, I'm, I have to find a way to be able to tell this and not have people, not have the fan base on my back about you can't do that because yeah, but look what Spock happened to Star never Trek. said that. <laughs> I mean, look what happened to that franchise. This well, but, Star Trek Beyond, who saw it? But he left. That's because he left. That's because J.J. Oh, no, J.J. directed Beyond. He directed... Did he? No, no, I'm sorry. He no. directed the second one. Second one. The con. He didn't direct it. But the third one uh, came and went. I didn't even know it was well, in the you theater. Know, JJ's got the magic touch. There's, there's no doubt about that. He was born and bred for, you know, for the business. Yeah. Um, and Rogue One is a is a better film than Force Awakens. Um, again, he had his hands tied. Force Awakens, I think, is a little more entertaining. But again, Force Awakens is a little lowest common denominator. And you yeah. know what I mean. We'll we, give him a Star Wars movie. And it's extremely know. predictable. And yeah. and but we're fine with that. You know what I mean? We're, we we went back to see Harrison and Carrie and and even and Mark. So. You know, Force Awakens. I, I don't want to damn it with faint praise. I mean, but it was even though John Williams wrote the score for that movie, I couldn't come out of there singing a particular theme the way I could with one of the old movies. Uh, no, absolutely. Or even with the, the the prequels, which everyone shits on, and in well, some cases, right, rightly so. But uh, you know, there were there were a definite story there in big bold letters, which Lucas is prone to using. Somebody needs to do a podcast on on motif, uh, 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 light motif, uh, light motif uh, music, yeah. because it doesn't exist anymore. And I can't, I can't, I can't whistle uh, any one. Uh, I, I mean, not even the Harry Potter theme. I know they have one, but I can't. Oh, you know what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it still doesn't ring true to me. Not not in the, in the same way that some of the old uh, old films of the of the mid or the eighties uh, do for me. Or my God, even the seventies. I mean, we can all sing the Godfather tune and, and so forth. And I don't know why uh, the, the, you know uh, uh, motif music isn't isn't more. Uh, it's all just it's all just tone now. Almost yeah, a lot of that. You know, Hans, Hans Zimmer. Yeah has uh, his group called Sonic Images, mm -hmm. and which is, you know, eight or ten other composers that he'll say, okay, here's a theme, and you expand on that. And he'll kind of write the major motif and then let them do the work. And a lot of them are just, you know, listen to uh, the score to Dark Knight Rises or, or, you know, one of the Batman movies. It's all just atmospheric, almost raw sound. It's very little actual scoring there. Uh, and I think that's... That's one of the things that John Williams revitalized with, you know, Jaws and Close Encounters and Star Wars, was he had an actual beautiful symphonic score. Yeah. And that's not dead. Uh, there are still some good scores out there. But uh, a lot nothing, of it anymore... Nothing that's toe-tapping that you whistle, you know... No, very few, very few. Uh, somebody needs to do a podcast on that. That's not us. But we are talking about, you know, the art and soul of, of, of cinema and how it's, how it's shifting and... and and changing and morphing uh, right in front of us, and, and you know Hollywood soundtrack certainly uh, plays into that. Um, 
Every aspect so, of filmmaking, yeah. I mean, it's just the whole the whole medium of telling stories visually is changing. You know, it's the, the, with the two-hour film format yeah. or uh, telling a story in a linear, linear progression, a three-act story. That's, you know, that's all up for grabs now. But but some of my argument has always been that Hollywood's not breeding talent. We talked in our... In our uh, in our first uh, podcast about uh, you know how these current Hollywood directors are being found, they're looking for Hollywood directors with a vo- they're looking for directors, independent film directors with a voice, and how Spielberg picked up uh, Colin uh, Trevorrow for uh, the Jurassic World, and now we're talking about how the art and soul has been lost. Well, some of that has to do with the fact that Hollywood isn't breeding talent anymore. They're looking for it. They're just going out. They're grabbing it. They're bringing it. You know what I mean? But they're not not in the way the old Hollywood system did. Well, it's no. Ironically, it's a lot like the old Hollywood system uh, because there are two excellent books, by the way, you should read, and you should read too, <laughs> okay. Mr. Ritchie, um, both by Peter Biskind, who used to write for a Premier magazine. I think it was the editor in chief of Premier, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, but uh, one the first one was called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and it's about the rise of of the sort of new wave of filmmakers in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, Easy Rider, uh, Martin Scorsese coming into his own, uh, George Lucas, Spielberg, um, Peter Bogdanovich. And it tells a story. The, the, the other book, by the way, is... Uh, what the hell is it called? Down and Dirty Pictures, I think, which is about the indie film wave, and particularly Miramax and Sundance uh, in the 90s. And we'll get to that one later. But in this book, there's a story about, I think it's Peter Bogdanovich that gets a job as kind of a PA or something on this old studio production. It's one of the last studio kind of grind them out like sausages productions. And the director was a guy named uh, Norman Tarog, who at the time was essentially blind. He was like, he had a cinematographer lining up a shot and, and Bogdanovich asked him a question. He said, I don't know, I can't see through it. <laughs> and he thought, what this the studio hired a director who can't see? I mean, do they care what this picture looks like? And it's no, and that's kind of where we are now. It's like, you know, you're, you're hiring a drill press operator. You know, yeah. we need this movie to be this long. It's got to have this element, that element, this good music, and you just do what we tell you. Manage the company. That's it, yeah. Take care of the rest. Here's what we want. You make it, and, uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. I mean... I mean, would we want to go back to the old studio, the, the silver screen? Would we want to go back to the days when the, when the Hollywood was... You know, when you, as an actor, you were hired, you spent all day on either set or in training. Um, you know, Hollywood can't afford to do that. They just can't afford to do it anymore. Um, but, but by not breeding talent, we're kind of, they're searching for it. Which, mind it's, you, is beneficial for us. Because if they're out there looking for talent because they're not, it's not, it's not part of their natural... Uh, uh, you know, mechanical operation to breed the talent themselves, then they're out there looking for independent filmmakers like us, or those of you that are listening. We want somebody who can do this. Right. This is the kind of movie we want to make. This guy seems to be able to do that. I I talked to somebody recently who who had pitched a film. I have to tell Ed this. Uh, Ed Sanchez, the director of The Blair Witch Project, uh, we, I recently met with a gentleman who was pitching a film to either Warner Brothers or Paramount, I can't remember, um, and he was telling me the story, and and the, the, the producer that he was speaking to said, uh, I would not have hired Ed Sanchez to direct my film, but damn, I would have hired him to market 
my film. <laughs> um, because Ed is sort of, sort of known as the, the godfather of internet uh, cinema mar- marketing. Um, and we'll get into that. We're going to be uh, interviewing Ed in our, in our last two episodes, uh, you know, talking about his experiences in Hollywood. Uh, here's a gentleman on the fringe who, who does independent film work um, who is uh, uh, currently uh, going to be releasing a couple of films in the, in the near future. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about his experiences sort of from an, from an insider's perspective. But my point, I guess the point that we're both trying to make here is, yes, Hollywood's a mess. Yes, Hollywood's kind of always been a mess. It's always, the, the system has always been changing. There was an article I recently read that talks about how cinema, that the industry itself changes every 10 years. It, 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 it enters a new phase. Um, Hollywood is going to continue to grow, mature, develop, um, both technically, mechanically, and from the, from a business perspective. And we as independent filmmakers, you can't let that hinder you from getting out there and making films because now, more than ever, Hollywood used to own the system. And that's not, that's not the case anymore, not with the likes of YouTube and iTunes and opportunities for filmmakers, to Vimeo, to get their product out to a worldwide audience. We've, you've never as a filmmaker had this kind of reach. And that is why we're doing this podcast to remind you continually: you got to get out, you got to do your project. Yeah, we're going to talk about how you can do that in the coming episodes. Um, but but with the voice that you now have, there's no reason to say I I can't or no one will ever see my film. That's that's bullshit. Unless you are uh, unless you are deluding yourself with the notion that I'm making movies to make money to become a, a wealthy uh, a wealthy well known. Filmmaker, that's that's not going to happen unless I mean, unless you hit the lottery, you know. That, that could be an eventuality. It's it's but, possible. It's possible, but you know, don't go into it for that reason. Do it because you love it. Absolutely, you got it. You, you that's why we do it. That's why we do it. Yeah, um, and that's why we're sharing this information with you folks for free. Um, we want you to keep listening. We have our next episode uh, coming up. Uh, where we're going to literally start to get into the nitty gritty of what it is that that we did how we produced an award-winning film, how we went about uh, uh, dealing with uh, an intellectual property that we created and then wanted to protect, and how we got our film uh, into the distribution tunnel uh, to the point where we couldn't even see the light at the end, uh, and then were able to come out uh, on top uh, with, mind you, a pretty decent return on investment. So uh, keep listening, folks. We've got more to come. Bye.